The central thesis of my work is that student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. That what we want for our students, um, access to that is born out of my willingness to uh, aggressively and constantly interrogate my own behavior. What am I creating in the moment? And what impact is that having on students' ability to stand uh, in their own greatness? Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. So welcome back to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. This is the second part of a two-parter um, with AJ Craybill, where we're talking about um, student-led restorative practices. And last time we talked about the adults, we talked about the administration, we talked about the process of really getting an initiative like this off the ground and in your school district. And today we're going to be talking about the student experience. So AJ, welcome back. It's good to be here. I'm excited to continue. All right, let's just dive right in then. So once we've said yes, and we've, as an administration and as a system said, let's do this thing, and some training takes place with all of those adults, and now it's time to engage in this initiative with our kids. Walk us through what that piece of this process looks like. Where do you start? Yeah, so this is a 24-month pilot that I committed to. And that we'd go from not implementing student-led restorative practices in June of 2022 to having at least three of our four campuses really demonstrating a very high degree of implementation, uh, moving from zero points on our zero to 100 scale to ideally over 80 points by June of 2024. In that 24-month pilot, this next fact is important spent the first nine out of 24 months exclusively training adults. Didn't trade a single solitary student in the first nine months. Is that always the way that this that, seems to that work? That is absolutely okay. what I recommend. I have never in all my years of being involved in this work ever seen a restorative practices initiative stumble because the students were just so bad that they destroyed it and tear it apart. Like that, that has not ever, it's not been my experience. Little AJ is so off the chain. We just can't, we can't have restoration. Like I've never experienced that. Either the adults who already hold the power in the system uh, are willful participants and really see this as an access to greatness on behalf of the children that they serve, or they don't. Either the adults are set up for se success in leaning into that, or they're not. And so, as odd as it sounds, in an initiative about student-led restorative practices, spent the first nine of 24-month pilot exclusively training adults, basically as uh, here on the ground, every single month, training groups of staff in schools to prepare and lay the groundwork for this full, more full implementation. So that's the first thing to be clear about is, it sounds odd, but it is a absolutely necessary piece that, that even though there was already a coalition of the willing in these uh, four high schools, because otherwise they wouldn't have been in the pilot at all, that growing that coalition within their high schools is absolutely essential and answering questions and helping 
create a sense of comfort around this rather than a fear factor around it is absolutely essential. Like if you throw this on top of your team, if you make this a compliance activity, if you do all of these things that, you know, Cotter and Zagarmi and these other change management gurus talk about are what absolutely destroy implementation, then don't be surprised when it doesn't work out. And so that, that was the first step is how do we, how do we train the adults that we have? Then a few months ago, we actually started with our first training for students. Uh, the training for students is a little bit more comprehensive and in-depth than the adult training. The adult training, I think of as just a general orientation. We just want you to have a sense of what are the things um, in the adult world that will make this work or not work? What is What will it look like? What will the experience for you be like? What will the experience for students be, look like? It's really just a general orientation. Two-day orientation, in-depth, generally a pretty emotional and powerful experience for folks, but an orientation nevertheless. What we're doing right now is we're doing three-day um, introduction trainings for students to get them up and running on skills necessary to deploy these three different practices, the community circles, the mediation circles, and the restorative circles. And I can give you a link to uh, the website where folks can go and look at the, um, our instrument and the different materials. Yeah, I'm, it's all, I make it all freely available. And, you know, if people want to use it and you know, be a blessing to their children, you know, take it. If you need help, call me and I'll gladly email and answer questions. Uh, to get people up and running, um, but but that's that's the first place. Is really these are the three practices that we're deploying, and we need students to have the skill set necessary uh, to deploy these. And so it's just three days full of practice, 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 just getting repetitions in on um, really knowing how to deploy these things, how to create a space of empathy, so that when your fellow students are triggered, uh, when they are in a place of non-connection. Like what are the skills that you need to bring to the table as a student leader to begin to help them feel a sense of restoration back with the larger learning? So which which students? So how 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 does that first cohort, that first yeah. group of students to be trained, how was that selection made, right? Because yeah. that could seem problematic to me, right? <laughs> so I give very explicit instructions on how to select the first cohort that basically boil down to, it needs to be as representative of your student body as possible along every dimension, but critically the dimensions that people often miss academically and behaviorally. So you need to have you know, the little Annalises who are making straight A's, you know, and have never been suspended in little goody two-shoes. And you need a little AJ's who is scrambling Wait a minute. for C's. Are you making some assumptions <laughs> here, AJ? Come on. <laughs> yeah, this little AJ who's running around here has been suspended every semester of life. Um, that, that you need both of those students. And one of the key mistakes that folks will make in this initial cohort, uh, because to jump to the punchline, the adults only have a say in the initial cohort. After you get it up and running, students then make all the selection decisions going forward. So if we're gonna call it student-led, then students actually need to lead. Um, but that initial cohort, students aren't around to lead yet, and so we've gotta have some. And so the key instructions make it as broadly representative along every facet. The only caveat in that very first group is, I tell them it's okay to leave out seniors and it's okay to leave out freshmen. So if it's, heavily over-indexed on sophomores and juniors, that's fine. The seniors, because in the first year of the, uh, of the pilot, they won't actually be leading a lot of sessions. And so all the seniors we train, we won't see them in the first year where it's actually deployed. And freshmen, uh, just because if we've 
what we really need is a heavy, heavy cohort of upperclassmen who are going to really help carry this. But after that initial cohort, you ideally want it as fully representative of your building as possible along every demographic, geographic, everything else, uh, academically, behaviorally. And that is the charge given to the students so that as you're bringing folks in, you need to make sure that this is the case. Part of why that's so crucial is because there is a credibility factor here that if little AJ, um, who has consistently been suspended, and shows up in one of these restorative circles and looks around and only sees a bunch of folks who have never seen the outside of a school building. They've only ever been in class all day, every day. They've never skipped perfect attendance. Like, I, like, why would I trust that y'all have any sense of the shoes I've walked in? Why would I believe that you have any more access to a sense of justice for me than the adults who I already can't trust? And so if you wanted to have credibility, you have to get past Probably the number one complaint I hear, uh, and, and I understand it's well-intended, but it is absolutely wrong-headed, is folks will say, well, why are we letting little AJ in? He's with the worst behaved one in the school. Like, he just tears stuff up. Uh, should, you know, why are we rewarding his bad behavior by letting him be a part of this leadership team? And to that, I say, I can point you to numerous students, not one, not two, you know, not only a dozen, numerous students who were also the worst ones in their schools, who also we pulled them into this work and they went on to be the most powerful leaders in that building. Because what's not at question is, are these students going to lead? That's a wrap. That has already been determined. Students are already subscribing to their leadership. I was going to say, they're already leading. (laughs) They're already doing that. Now the only question is, whose playbook are they leading from? Are they leading from one that, we believe is going to lift up what's possible for them and what they want for their own lives? Um, or are they trying to figure it out themselves and maybe they sort out something that works and maybe they don't? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, the students have been in the mix for a really, really, really long time. All right, so we get the first cohort of students. So walk us through a little bit high level then. What does that work with that group look like? What does it yeah. entail? What, as a student, what does it feel like? Yeah, so the first thing to be clear about is the, the variety on this is across the board. Like it, It'll never be the same yeah. in any two places, so, right? So I'm going to describe the ideal scenario, recognizing that each school, just based on the size of their building and the size of their staff, have to wind up varying it to what's the closest to ideal they can get. But in my favorite implementations of this, what the schools have done is there's a classroom somewhere in the school. And if you walk in there any time of day, it looks kind of like a study hall. There's a teacher doing something and there's students you know, looking like they're studying, getting caught up on studies or whatever. But every single student in that particular room has been fully trained. And when some type of drama pops off somewhere else in the building, the normal path for those students would be to be sent straight to the principal's office. And then the AP would come out and deal with them. Instead, their path gets sent to this room where there are students who are waiting and they immediately spring into action. There is a full process they go through. There's intake interviews. The students lead all that. There's kind of a readiness assessment. Students you know, determine all of that. 
if students feel like this is not appropriate, a little AJ has just kind of gamed the system, then this is not appropriate for you. We'll send you on down to the system principal and y'all can sort that out. But they have to make these type of critical decisions of, is this appropriate for this process? And if they decide it is, then right there in real time on the spot, you know, they lead the circle, whichever circle is appropriate, normally either a mediation circle or a restorative circle, they, right there in real time, they lead it. And so um, what I love about this is that this is exactly what every teacher would love to do. Every teacher would love to, I see two students in conflict. I'd love to sit down with them and say, okay, you know, Annalise, you know, AJ, you know, let's talk through this. Let's really unpack this. Um, let's you know, get to root causes. Let's get you back to a place where you two are you know, kind of restored in your connection, c- come up with a solution in the context of that restoration, and then go about your business. Every teacher would love to do that. Why don't teachers do that? Because in 10 minutes, I got 28 other students about to show up in my classroom and I don't have time. So what I do instead is like, hey, look, you two, uh, you know, shake hands, be nice to each other, make up, all right, go to class and behave. And so it's not that teachers don't want there to be this spaciousness. It's just they don't have time and we aren't resourced as school systems to hire the quantity of staff. But the good news is every school I've ever visited, there are more students than adults. So, <laughs> and so if we every could, school. If we could every, every school, school I've been to, <laughs> and so if we could take advantage of that phenomenon, we could have a group of students who are ready and able and trained and uh, fired up about the work, then students can have that real-time, in-the-moment support that they need to really process through, to really get a sense of what are the skills that I need to be developing to really live the life that I want, um, and then get back to class. What it means is that student had whatever circumstance they came up, happened, happened. Uh, they went, they worked with a group of their peers. They went through a pre-circle process. They went through a circle process. If that culminated, then they leave that with the understanding, we're going to check back in with you in seven days to figure out, are we still on track with the agreements, the smart agreements that we put in place? And then that student goes back to class. The teacher has not had to um, intervene and do all of the work around that. We've actually freed the teachers up to teach. We've freed them up to actually focus on the things that's on their heart to do, but still made sure that the needs of the students had were attended to. And that's why I say, I think the teachers at the schools were rolling this out. I think they've seen the light on this thing. It's like, actually, this is going to free me up in ways that there's nothing else coming. Like anything else that could possibly replicate this effect has to come with a $10 million a year additional price tag that realistically ain't coming. And so doing, doing it this way, really deputizing our students to be in the leadership position of their own school culture and climate um, is a win for the adults. It's a win for the students. For the students, you know, I, I experience getting that type of support and listening and nurturing conversation that I need in order to get back on track. And for adults, I get to be in a building with students who are actually receiving the things that I wish I had the time to give them. And I would assume that this is empowering for all participants in a variety of different ways. Right. So the student that's struggling, let's just say from a behavioral standpoint, there's some issue likely even a recurring issue, this process gives them a set of tools, it gives them a set of resources, it gives them a set of acknowledgements. What what for that student, what? Yeah, the the term that you use, the tools, is actually what I use. Here's the argument I make, and again, people disagree with me on it, but I'm going to take this to the grave with me, that my experience with students, and a lot of students I've worked with by intention, by design, have been students who 
have already been around the block on behavior issues. Uh, like those are the students I'm drawn to, you know, and the work that I've seen has led me to this conclusion that students can be relied on to consistently use the tool in their toolbox that is the most optimal tool for the circumstance they're encountering. I, I want to hit you with one more time. Students can be relied on to use the the tool in their toolbox that is most optimal to confront the circumstance uh, that is in front of them. To say that suggests that when I see behavior that is not what I want for students and often not what they want for themselves, what is lacking is not that this student is entirely without character and they're a horrible human and we should excommunicate them from their instructional environment. What's happening is they simply reach into their toolbox and the tool that they pulled up is probably the best tool that they have access to, but is still the wrong tool for the job. If we're asking that if we you know put a screw in a piece of plywood and say, hey, get that screw in there, and then they open up their toolbox and the only thing in there is a hammer, then we shouldn't be surprised when they go to work on that thing with gusto. They have used the tool in their toolbox that is best suited to that job. I got a tape measure, you know, I got this hammer, and I got a water bottle. Okay, well, I guess the hammer makes the most sense, and they hammer away on that screw. That is not the solution, but it is the most optimal solution that they have given the tools in their toolbox. Our work then, how do we add more tools to the toolbox? And my experience is even the most violent children that I've worked with when given the set of tools, it actually allows them to create peace, create connection, create restoration in their own lives and the lives of their peers around them. That it's not that they stopped fighting because I told them fighting is wrong. I don't do that. It's not that they stopped fighting because I told them that that's, that's a bad thing and that's going to make their life harder. I don't, I don't say any of those things to students. I aggressively say none of those things to students. What I say to students is, I'm going to give you some more tools with your hard work and my support. We're going to fill up your toolbox. And my only request is that the next time something shows up and I can promise you something going to show up, the next time something shows up, my only request isn't that you not fight. My request is that you use whichever tool in the toolbox your wisdom tells you is the most optimal tool for the circumstance. And in that context, so many of the students I work with simply go forth and never fight again. Because you gave them other options. They, they, they got other that, tools. That they now have the power to choose for themselves. They've got other tools. And, they, and, they, and my belief is they'll choose. And, and, and people need to be clear. The students I work with often come from circumstances where there may be moments where the ability to fight their way out of a situation may actually be a life-saving skill. And so I'm not going to be the one to say, hey, get, hang your fist up and, and, and that's, that's a horrible thing. That's a bad thing. Don't do that. They, unfortunately, the context of some of my kids are in, that may in fact be a redemptive skill for them. But in our schools, that's just pretty much never the case. There are so many adults. There's so many systems in place. There's so many options. There's so many ways to be successful in school without that. That my experience is when they have the tools that they need, that that's not the tool that they reach into the toolbox and grab. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting as you're talking about this element, I, I kept catching myself sort of hearkening back to um, when I first started the PASS Foundation and then our early work was taking 
taking groups of kids out into the field, however you want to define that, off to have these experiences. And I, and I vividly remember um, having, having teachers or school say to me as we're looking at the group of kids that were going to go and do whatever this thing happened to be, right? Saying, oh, you, you don't want little AJ because <laughs> AJ is the worst kid in my class and AJ can't do that thing that you are planning to take AJ off on. And I cannot tell you how many times I took AJ anyway. And what I discovered, and I would come back and I would tell the school this, and two of one, oh, they did not believe me. I'm like, (laughs) AJ was the best kid in the entire group, right? Because I took him out of this environment that didn't necessarily really fit him, or to your point, he didn't have the tools he needed to be successful in school. And now I took him into this field environment, and I gave him a different set of responsibilities and taught him skills he'd never been exposed to, and suddenly AJ is the best leader of the group. AJ's coming up with incredible solutions. Little AJ has everybody else following him. And he's <laughs> right. not right. And next summer, I want AJ to come with me because AJ's that good. And yet getting the adults to see this kid, because that's not their day-to-day, right? And again, you're right. It's because those kids didn't have the tools to be successful in that environment. We, put the, we, we never gave them the option. Their toolbox didn't have that thing they needed. The central thesis of my work is that student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. That what we want for our students, um, our access to that is born out of my willingness to uh, aggressively and constantly interrogate my own behavior. What am I creating in the moment? And what impact is that having on students' ability to stand uh, in their own greatness? And that that is born out of so many experiences. And you've probably, and all your listeners have probably seen this as well, where you'll see little AJ in one class and it's just absolutely the model student and just engaged and on fire for the work. And then you see little AJ in another class and just completely destroying everything. And my observation of that is certainly little AJ's behavior is not acceptable and there has to be accountability for the harm that little AJ is creating. But I can't help but notice that that same child is capable of something else in a different context. My question is, what is the adult behavior change that could free up little AJ to be the highest version of themselves um, throughout their entire schooling experience and not just in this one particular class or these two classes? Yeah, I 100%. I agree with you on that. So as we sort of... um, think about bringing all of this full circle. Um, tell us about the three circles, because I, I imagine my listeners are like, okay, we've, we've invested a lot of time here. This is really amazing, but help me understand these three elements, because it seems to me that these three elements in and of themselves are powerful individual tools that be, almost become a tool that's stackable in the sense that, you know, um, I have a handle and I can put this tool on it and I can put this tool on it and I can put this tool on it depending on what that's I right, need. That's right. That's uh, right. So the first tool is community circles. And it's the intention of those is to be proactive is that on a regular basis, ideally teachers are just making this a part of how we do school. And so I, you know, every Monday we have a check-in circle where we just see where folks are at and how they're feeling and what's going on for them. 
Um, the intention of that is just to build a sense of community, a sense of belonging. The evidence on this is abundantly clear. Students who experience of belonging are much more persistent in the inevitable challenges of the instructional environment than students who don't experience a sense of belonging. Learning is hard. Anybody who thinks that learning is just, you know, all rainbows and unicorns hasn't been in the classroom lately. Like, it's, nice. it's challenging. It's challenging. <laughs> you, know, you know, little bitty AJ is trying to figure out how to spell, pronounce cat. It's like, cat, cat. We might be here for 15 more minutes while I'm trying to figure this out. And it might be frustrating. In the context of that frustration, I might choose to give up. But if I have a relationship with my teacher, she's like, hey, hey, now, now, now. Your hard work and my support, we're going to get you there. Just need you to keep on trying this a little bit longer. In the context of that sense of belonging, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to try this again. And little AJ is going to figure out cat. But there's a struggle there. And, and the learning process uh, is, is not removable from struggle. This is just an inherent part of the worry. Is, uh, whether you love the content or you don't love the content, at some point there's just go, there's going to be struggle. And the question is, have we created a space of belonging for students such that they are prepared to persevere in the context of the struggle because of the sense of connectedness that they experience? And so the sense of belonging is crucial. The intention of restorative, uh, of community circles is just to constantly be creating the context for belonging. Now, a lot of students are already going to get a lot of belonging. This is why, you know, band nerds tend to persist to graduation more so than non-band nerds. But that's because they've got this real huge, you know, tribe of folks that they all, they wear funny hats. They wear cute outfits. I was you know, an they have orchestra band. dork. Orchestra dork. Yeah. That's what we called ourselves. It, and it's across, it's across the spectrum. You know, you're, you know, your debate nerds, your chess nerds, your football you know, team, like when students experience a sense of belonging, but not every student is involved in all of these different things. And so uh, I, I, my call to the teachers and the schools where we're deploying this is make community circles, just a regular occurrence where you're just having a circle. We're just checking in with folks, seeing how folks are doing. And you could even use it for academic purposes. Uh, you know, a teacher could say, hey, we got a, a quiz coming up on Friday. Um, you know, on fractions, let's go around the circle. Everybody give me a number of zero to 10. Um, what's your prediction of whether or not you're going to ace this quiz? Uh, hard zero, man. Uh, okay, got it. You know, three, eight, seven, five, two, one. Okay, um, you know, little AJ, I heard you say two. Um, say more about that. What, what do you feel like you're missing uh, that you're not set up for success on this? Hey, you know, I heard you say, you know, nine. You know, what is it that really worked for you that has you feel like you're you know, super ready to ace this thing? And then that gives me some formative information as a teacher about, okay, so what are the th where are my students at uh, in, where, in, in their level of confidence and what, what are things that I may have missed instructionally or gaps that they have? Um, and so it can be used in a variety of ways, but the intention of community circles is how do we just create a sense of community and belonging for students on a proactive basis? We're not waiting for things to go awry. This is just part of how we do school. That's tier one. The next tier of, uh, and so imagine the spectrum um, from zero to 10, where zero is perfectly calm and 10 is completely out of control violent, that your community circles really make the most sense in the zero to three, zero to four range. Like this is just a normal part of school. There's nothing happening. There's no conflict. It's just we're creating a space for blogging. Your next tier of that is mediation circles. Think of those as kicking in around the four, five, six, seven range that we've moved from calm into conflict. Now, conflict is a normal part of the human experience. There's nothing wrong with conflict, uh, but we do need skills on how to 
uh, navigate it such that at the end of the conflict, we're experiencing a greater sense of connection rather than uh, a less sense or a tenuous sense of connection. And so in mediation circles, what's happening is two students are feeling a sense of disconnection. And so they come into the room where uh, the restorative work happens and some students do the intake work, decide it's appropriate for them to participate in the mediation circle and sit the two of them down and then just work through the process with them of really creating empathy for you know, student A and really checking in with them and seeing what their experience is and then creating empathy for student B. Now, while I'm doing this, student A is hearing my conversation with student B, but not participating. And when I'm checking with student A, student B is hearing my conversation with student uh, B, but not participating. And through this, they actually start to hear each other, often for the first time. And slowly, ideally, we start to repair whatever the frayed connection is. A key motto of this work for the students, we don't solve no problems. We are not here to solve problems. It's not what we're here to do. We do not solve problems. What we do is we create the context for a restoration of the connection between these two people with the belief that in the context of connection, they'll figure out their own problems. They'll solve it themselves. That what has them not solving it isn't the nature of the problem. What has them not solving is the nature of the disconnection. We solve the disconnection. We help create a context for them to find each other again. And they'll figure it out. They'll figure out the solution on their own, that we do not solve problems. That's problem solving. External problem solving is not about putting tools in students' toolboxes. I'm about putting tools in students' toolboxes. Whoever solves the problem, learn the most about problem solving in the future. And so I want that to be the students who are, because if I'm the problem solver, that just means next week when y'all have a problem, y'all gonna come back to me, the oracle of problems, and I will solve it for you. But if I teach you to fish, now the next time you have a challenge, Sort it out yourself. That's the mediation circles. And then at the top of this, uh, this continuum of behavior from calm to violent, you know, as we get into 7, 8, 9, 10, students have, in fact, violated a norm of the school. And normally this would result in them going to the principal's office and going through the normal retributive disciplinary process that, uh, that are available. But instead, they go to this group of students, and the students lead a restorative circle that is intended to have the author of harm take full accountability for the harm that they've created for themselves, for their uh, fellow students, for their learning environment, their instructional community or school. And then in concert with the participants in the circle, create a plan complete with SMART goals for what they will do over the next seven days to repair the harm that they have created, the harm that they created for themselves, for their classmates and for their school and their learning environment. And if everyone in the circle agrees with that and everyone, including the student who was harmed, everyone in the circle has to sign off on this. And if not everybody agrees, then we either keep working or if we can't figure it out, then we do just pass it on to the system principal and they deal with it. But if everyone can reach an agreement that these strategies, these SMART goals, once accomplished, will sufficiently repair the harm that was created, then that circle is complete. And the student now has seven days to go out and implement the plan. And then seven days later, we will reconvene the circle to uh, ascertain, did they honor their word? Did they actually um, take the restorative actions that they committed to take? This is, this is about character building. This is about character development. This is about preparing students to be functional, successful uh, people in the world. You know, when I talk to 
uh, folks in universities and folks in military and folks in industry and ask them, hey, you know, we're trying to think about what does it look like to be college career military ready? One of the things I most commonly hear is, can they get along with people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it is a, is an employer, you know, I'm constantly wondering, can I hire people who can just get along? Um, these are these are skills about what is it to be successful while being human. And and those are those are skills that I would want for for every single student who walks through our building. But so often we aren't providing any intentional character development in our schools. We aren't creating an opportunity for students who uh, need to grow in in these areas of you know how do I restore connection? How do I successfully navigate a conflict? Um, how do I repair harm that I've created? Students who don't show up with that skill, great. They don't have that tool in their toolbox. Let's create the context for them to have that tool in their toolbox. And that's that's what the restorative circles are all about. I love that. I think the thing that I love the most about this whole um, this whole work that you are eyeballs deep in is the fact that you are recognizing that kids do not come ready-made with everything they need to be a, a completely fully formed human. I don't understand this. It's a school. It's like being stunned. Like, why don't these third graders know calculus? Like, I don't understand why they arrive here without calculus knowledge. It's a school. What did you expect? We're supposed to be teaching, right? Uh, that, that's, we're, we're learning here. Um, AJ, thank you so much uh, for taking time to, uh, to join us to have this conversation. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you do. Uh, absolutely my pleasure like i said when you see what these students do you cannot unsee it and it'll inspire you to do work i'll, I'll send you some links you can share you know with your listeners I, I just encourage people to watch what our students can do and imagine what it would take who you will have to become in your respective community to help bring this work to your students as well. absolutely thank you so much thank you for joining us for learning unboxed conversation about teaching learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.